Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hi, my name is Ezekiel, and I will be reading Revelation 21, 1 through 7 in Spanish. Entonces vi un cielo nuevo y una tierra nueva, porque el primer cielo y la primera tierra habían desaparecido y también el mar. Y vi la ciudad santa, la nueva Jerusalén, que descendía del cielo desde la presencia de Dios, como una novia hermosamente vestida para su esposo. Oí una fuerte voz que salía del trono y decía, «Miren, el hogar de Dios ahora está entre su pueblo». Él vivirá con ellos y ellos serán su pueblo. Dios mismo estará con ellos. Él les secará toda lágrima de los ojos y no habrá más muerte, ni tristeza, ni llanto, ni dolor. Todas esas cosas ya no existirán más. Y el que estaba sentado en el trono dijo, «Miren, hago nuevas todas las cosas». Entonces me dijo, «Escribe esto, porque lo que te digo es verdadero y digno de confianza». También dijo, «Todo ha terminado». Yo soy el alfa y la omega, el principio y el fin. A todo el que tenga sed, yo le daré a beber gratuitamente de los manantiales del agua de la vida. Los que salgan vencedores heredarán todas esas bendiciones y yo seré su Dios y ellos serán mis hijos. Esta es la palabra del Señor. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Yusuf. I'm the college director here. Uh, and if this is your first time at the well... Welcome. I'm so glad that you are here as we continue on in our sermon series on Advent. Uh, and so as I mentioned earlier, as a church, uh, we are a week ahead um, of the traditional church calendar. So although technically we are in week three of Advent, today we'll be covering the last theme of Advent, which is joy. Joy. Now, if I'm going to be honest, uh, as excited as I am to be with you all today... Uh, I have to be honest and say, although we're talking about joy, I felt really, really heavy during the initial stages of putting the sermon together. Preparing on a talk about joy was difficult for a few reasons. One, because I know with certainty that when I say the word joy, we're all more or less thinking the same thing, right? We're all thinking joy. We're all thinking that feeling of immense pleasure and all the things associated with bringing us that feeling. And so for some of us, joy is how we would describe what we feel around certain people. If you were going to ask my wife what brings her joy, my hope is that she would say me, 
right? Most of the time. But joy doesn't even have to be that deep. Some of y'all would describe joy as the feeling you get when you're out in nature. I don't get it, right? That doesn't bring me joy, but to each his own, okay? For me, it's no secret. Pumpkin cream cold brews from Starbucks, they bring me joy, all right? And I'm not ashamed to say it, and I never was. So much joy is what they bring me, all right? When, when it comes to joy, we are all likely thinking the same thing. Our definition of joy is synonymous with happiness, the the pleasure we feel as a result of our present circumstances. And so for many of us in here, that does accurately describe the season of life that you're in. Things are exciting. Things are vibrant. You feel it, right? Maybe, you know, you're getting married. You just got engaged to the love of your life. Or maybe you're having a baby. Or maybe you just got a job. Maybe your relationship with the Lord is better than it's ever been. Listen, praise God if that's you. Because it's good. And it's godly. And it foreshadows what's to come. Yet, the reason why this was a fairly difficult sermon to construct at first was because though I'm still young, I've been around long enough to know that how we define joy is not an accurate picture of what a lot of you guys are going through right now. It's not an accurate picture of what your life looks like right now. And I'm thoroughly convinced that if I were to do an open mic and just invite people to come up here and share openly and honestly about what they're going through, we would quickly see... That on the day that I'm supposed to talk about joy, there are people in here that have had the hardest years of their life. And so can I be real this morning? I hope so. On the day that we're supposed to talk about joy, happy-go-lucky, positive vibes only, joy. On this day, there are marriages in here that are hanging on by a thread. The, the thorns and thistles and foxes of life have eaten away at the vineyard of intimacy between some spouses in here. And some spouses may be wondering if they're even going to last another year. Can I be real? On the day that we're supposed to talk about joy, for some of us, anxiety and depression are more present than they've ever been. For, for some of us, it may be struggles with our health. And you were maybe hoping that 2023 would be the year of breakthrough only to be met with disappointment in December. Some of you have lost loved ones, and the holidays are a time when the sting of death feels more like a sucker punch to the gut. Can I be real this morning? On the day we're supposed to talk about joy, the the state of our economy means many of us in here are struggling financially, and some of us maybe even for the first time. For others of you, this year has been so difficult, but you haven't been able to put your finger on why. On the surface, you can't point to anything specific, but internally you know that joy is escaping your grasp and you can't quite pinpoint why. I could go on and on and on. Are you starting to feel why this was a difficult task initially? Now, this may not be you. And in fact, I hope that this isn't you, right? Some of you guys may have been the happiest you've ever been when you came in here today. You came in ready to sing, hug everybody, and then you hear me and you're like, Merry Christmas? I guess, right? What's useless problem, dude? There's a Debbie Downer up here. If that's you, like I said, praise God. But the reality is, for many of us in here, if I were to do an open mic and give everyone truth serum, I'm convinced those are the kind of stories we would hear. And yet, I'm supposed to come up here and talk about joy. You see, at first glance, it seems hard, right? It it seems like painful circumstances and biblical joy are incompatible. 
And so there's this awkward tension that forms as a result. And this awkward tension is what made this, difficult, this sermon difficult at first. That is until I read my Bible. And I mean really read it and really understood the essence of biblical joy. You see, like happiness, biblical joy is an emotion. We feel it. But where we're tempted to believe that joy is fully dependent on present circumstances, biblical joy calls us to dig deeper than emotions and to look further than what's happening right now. I actually love the Bible Project's definition of biblical joy. They say this, that the core of biblical joy is the lasting emotion that comes from the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises despite what you may be going through. And so here's in essence what this means about biblical joy. If this is true, it means that biblical joy doesn't sidestep the reality of suffering and struggle. It speaks directly to it. Uh, On this day, it's possible to pursue biblical joy, not just if you're on a mountaintop, but even in the valley, because biblical joy goes deeper than present circumstances. At its foundation, it is an emotion, but it's built on the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises despite what you're going through. And so because this is what the Bible says about joy, what seems like this irreconcilable tension is actually very consistent. It's a consistent pattern we see in the Bible. And so if you're in here today and you're tempted to check out, right, because you're not in a season of joy, biblical joy has more to do with God's promises towards you and for you than it does your present circumstances. So don't check out even if you're tempted to. Please know, if that is you, you're not alone, right? And to prove to you you're not alone, before we really even get into talking about God's promises mentioned in our passage, I want us to first see examples of this pattern of God calling his people to trust him in the midst of their pain. And then I want us to look at what those promises are and and what those promises mean for our present and future joy. And so with that as the backdrop, let's dive in. If biblical joy speaks directly to the reality of struggle, where else do we see this tension in Scripture? I'm glad you asked, Paul. I will tell you. Let me give you some context as to the the very book that we're in today. John, who is the author of Revelation, he's writing to Christians in his day that are being murdered for their faith in Christ. Not only that, but John himself, he's not writing from a place of solace and security, right? He's writing this letter after being, while being stranded on a deserted island, after being boiled alive, a, a failed attempt to take his life. And it's in the midst of John's suffering and in the midst of John writing his letters to churches that are suffering that God gives John a vision of a fulfilled promise, a glimpse, a glimpse of a day when he brings about a glorious future for those who believe in Christ. Verse 1, when I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That word new in the Greek, it means completely new, right? Like previously unknown type of new. Not even possible to compare to the old type of new. So this isn't some cheap makeover. God's not just going to put a Band-Aid on everything, right? We're just going to patch some things up, then we'll be good to go. No, this is God's promise to bring about a completely new creation, something we can't even fathom. And we'll talk about the implications of this as it pertains to joy in a second. But I want us to notice that this is a pattern in the Bible, that in the midst of their pain, God offers, gives them 
an opportunity to trust that he will fulfill his promises. And because this is a consistent pattern, our passage in Revelation isn't the first time that God issues a promise to make all things new in response to the pain of his people. 800 years prior to John's vision in Revelation, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to a people who were experiencing the pain of exile, the pain of waiting for for God to free them from their oppressor. And in the midst of that pain, God doesn't slap a Christianese Band-Aid on their suffering. He's not like, hey, y'all get over it, right? Y'all be all right, quit complaining. Turn that frown upside down. He doesn't do that. But notice, what I want you to notice is the number of times that God uses joy to describe what's to come. I create Jerusalem to be a joy. And I will, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You see, at the height of Israel's pain, God doesn't sidestep their pain. He doesn't invalidate it, but rather he issues a promise a promise of a glorious future of eternal joy, a promise when he, a future when he promises to make all things new and ushers in an eternal kingdom of everlasting joy where even God himself will forever rejoice over us. And so biblical joy isn't pretending to be okay when you're not. It's tied to remembering God's promises and choosing to trust his promises will come to pass even when it's difficult. Hear me, friends. If you've come in here on a mountaintop, praise God. It's but a shadow of what's to come. But if you've come in here downcast, heavy, troubled, challenged, experiencing this tension of disappointment during the season of hope, love, peace, and joy, I want you to know that what you're feeling is not foreign to the Bible and you're not alone. God sees you. It's not lost on him what you're going through. It doesn't catch him by surprise. He loves you. And he wants you to know that joy can be found now when anticipating the everlasting joy that is to come and by trusting in the promises fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. And so now for the rest of our time, I actually wanna talk about what some of those promises are and what they say about the joy we can have now because of the joy that is to come. So the first thing that John mentions at the end of verse one is that there is no more sea. Stop. Uh, Why would John say this, right? Personally, I know this comes as a shock to most of you, but I'm not the strongest swimmer and I'm not the biggest fan of water. So I hear that there's no more sea in heaven and I don't really care, okay? I'm indifferent, all right? But I'm willing to bet that for most of you, you hear that there's no more sea and you're like, that doesn't sound like heaven at all. Because as a Westerner, right, in the city of Austin, you hear sea and you, you immediately think, whether it's fishing or floating, you're probably thinking a place of peace and tranquility. But if you were a Jew who knew what the sea symbolized in Jewish culture, you would have thought this was the absolute best news you could ever hear. You, 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 would, you would shout for joy at the news that God promises no more sea in his new creation. Why is that? Because in Jewish thought, seas symbolize death, the separation, and ultimately chaos. Just a few chapters earlier in Revelation, the sea was the ultimate resting place of the dead. And you all remember in Matthew's gospel when the disciples were in a boat, right? During a chaotic storm, 
and they look out into the storm and they see Jesus walking on water, the text says that they were absolutely terrified because they thought they saw a ghost. Why would they think they saw a ghost? They're not in a cemetery or a haunted house, right? They, they thought they saw a ghost because that was the only way for their minds to rationalize the sight of what looks like a man walking on something associated with the dead. C represents chaos. Chaos is the unraveling of God's good and perfect order. When God originally created us, when he originally created us, he created us to be perfect, complete, lacking nothing, shalom in every way, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. However, the moment mankind decided to rebel against God, sin injected chaos into creation and into every aspect of the human experience. The the shalom that we had with God and with one another was fractured. And so now all the ways that God intends for us to experience wholeness are all the ways that we experience pain now, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And so as a Jew, to hear God's promise through John that there is no more sea, this meant the promise of no more chaos. No more chaos, which is not just amazing news for them, it's amazing news for us today, news to rejoice over because chaos is the very reason why our experience of joy is inconsistent at best and perpetually absent at worst. If you've heard talks about joy in the past, you've probably heard that when people talk about joy, they they talk about the difference between joy and happiness. You've probably heard that happiness and joy, they're not the same. Happiness is temporary based solely on present circumstances and is fleeting where joy is different because it causes you to go deeper than what you're presently experiencing. And I would agree that there's a difference, but I would argue that when God originally created the world, he didn't intend for there to be a difference. When God originally created everything, he called it good, period. So it didn't come with an expiration date attached to it. He designed it to be good forever. Happiness was never meant to be temporary. We were meant to experience happiness in its fullness forever, in every way. But chaos, the unraveling of God's good order, is the reason why there's a difference now. Thanks to chaos, what goes up is bound to come down. Feelings of excitement Mountaintop moments are just that, moments, temporary, but they were never meant to be. And I believe it can be most painful when that happiness eventually fades because we were designed to experience that happiness eternally. And so we deeply desire it. We chase after it only to be met with the harsh reality it doesn't exist on this side of eternity. So some of you guys know this well because in high school, You were that dude, right? Or you were that girl that got all the attention because you were the smartest or the best looking or the most athletic, right? And so you're like, man, this feels kind of good. It feels happy to get all this attention. You begin to build this kingdom on the attention and the approval and acceptance of others, only to be met with the harsh reality that it doesn't last. Because if you went to college, you found out immediately it doesn't matter how many accolades you have in high school, nobody cares. No one cares. Some of y'all don't believe me. You're like, nah, man, I'm still that dude because of what I did in high school, right? If that's you, I dare you. I dare you to wear your high school letterman out next time you go out. Do it. And I dare you, start showing off your patches to the people you meet. 
This one right here is Honor Society over here. This one, uh, when I rode the bus for four years. This one over here, John 6, 360. Like, dude, see how quickly you realize nobody cares, bro. No one cares. The, the kingdoms we build on lesser joys will one day come crashing down because happiness is temporary. But it was never meant to be temporary. Chaos that comes as a result of our sin is the reason for this. And yet God himself promises that chaos will be the first thing to go in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a promise. Now for the rest of our passage, John begins to outline other promises that will come as a result of there being no more chaos in God's new creation. In verse two, he sees the holy city coming down out of heaven. See, this is the very place that Jesus himself said that he was going to prepare for all of those who love him, right? Some of you guys are already thinking of the song in your head. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing the song. A big, big house with lots and lots of room, right? We all kind of think that. It's this place, but we'd be mistaken if we miss the fact that the new Jerusalem isn't just pointing to a place. It's referring to a people, And that word people in verse three translates to the idea of people with a variety of different backgrounds being completely unified. What John is seeing here is speaking to the kind of community that will exist in the new heaven and new earth. An incredibly diverse community, yet perfectly unified and made holy before God. A community free from chaos. The promise of no more chaos means the promise of perfect community. And the implications of this when it comes to joy are huge. Because all of us in here are hardwired by our maker to find joy, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with others, right? And it's not random, it's it's God-given. We see that in Genesis, but we also see in Genesis when sin injected chaos into the world, It's not just their relationship with God that was fractured. It was their relationship with one another. So where God hardwired us to experience the fullness of joy in unifying relationships, chaos brings disunity. This is why if I were to ask you, hey, think of moments in your life where where you've experienced the most joy. Guess what those memories would often include? Other people. Likewise, if I were to ask you, man, what, what lies at the foundation of some of your most painful memories? Sometimes isolation, but also sometimes other people or lack of other people. Chaos in community is often why our experience of joy on this side of eternity is so difficult. Yet, once again, biblical joy doesn't sidestep the reality of difficult or broken relationships or the lack of relationships. If you're feeling the pain of isolation, it speaks directly to it by giving us the picture of God's promise to remove chaos from relationships once and for all. So biblical joy can be had when we choose to trust that God will fulfill his promise to remove chaos from community once and for all. And personally, it was God's promise to one day do this, one day provide perfect community that got me through one of the most painful, difficult, isolating seasons of my life. Many of you know, I grew up Muslim and it was in high school that I decided to follow Jesus. And so as you can imagine, um, because I was in a family of devout Muslims, I was scared to death to tell them that I was a Christian because Islam wasn't just this kind of nominal religion in my family. It was the glue that held our family together. So I knew telling them about my faith in Christ, it would break their hearts. 
So I made a vow at 15 to not tell my family that I was a Christian until I turned 30. I turned 31 last month, and they still don't know that I'm Christian. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, gets them every time, every time. Hey, I was planning. I was planning for 15 years, and I made it two, all right? It ended up being only two years. But let me tell you, in those two years, I was an isolated Christian who had never experienced the joy of living in biblical community. However, every so often, a good friend of mine in high school, his name was Noah, him and I played football together, and he would invite me after football practice to come with him to his like, youth group. And I didn't go. I maybe went two or three times. And the perks of having parents that didn't really know that much about American football was I could tell them practice went out to 10 p.m. and they wouldn't ask any questions, right? <laughs> we know the difference. And yet I remember walking into that youth group and just worshiping with like 50 other students and, and fellowshipping with these other Christians, feeling like I had known them for years after 30 minutes of talking with them. At the time, I, I had never read Revelation, but something in me told me, man, this is what heaven is going to be like. Something in my spirit was like, man, this, this doesn't just feel right. It feels like heaven. And then I would go back home to living in isolation, to hiding my faith and hiding my Bible. It was tough, but in the midst of the pain of isolation, God gave me a glimpse of a glorious future to come. No more loneliness. No, no more broken relationships. No more broken families. No more fallouts. But only the fullness of joy experienced eternally in perfect community. Why? Because there's no more sea. There's no more sea. And so biblical joy, it doesn't sidestep the reality of relational pain. It speaks directly to it and promises a future when God ushers in an eternal kingdom with perfect community. The question today is, will we allow ourselves to hope and to trust in God to bring about his promise of no more chaos, which means the promise of perfect community? No more, no more chaos doesn't just mean perfect community. It's also a promise of perfect communion with God. In verse 3, John hears an announcement from a loud voice on a throne, an announcement that starts with, behold. That word behold is a very, it's a very simple word, but it's meant to grab our attention in a big way. as to say, look, open your eyes. Don't miss what's happening. Don't let this moment pass you by. Pay attention to what's taking place. And then the voice continues to say in verse three, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And so if we were actually going to heed the advice of this voice, to actually behold and reflect on the reality of what was just said, two things would happen. One, we would not only immediately rejoice at the mind-blowing reality of what is taking place in his vision, but second, we would also realize that once again, this isn't the first time that God has followed through on a promise to dwell with his people. You see, that word dwelling place in the Greek is the same word for tabernacle. He tabernacled. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is where God's manifest presence would dwell on earth with the people of Israel. And oftentimes in the scriptures, the scriptures that contain God's promises to dwell with his people are shortly followed by scriptures that say God will be their God and they will be his people. Like in Leviticus and Ezekiel. 
I will make my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. Those two ideas often marry each other in the scriptures as to say that God dwelling with his people has always been about communion. It's always been about God walking with his people the same way that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, communion. However, in the Old Testament, this communion with God came with a caveat. Because of the people's sin, they couldn't go in the tabernacle. Only the priests could go into the tabernacle to intercede on behalf of the people. And so the people, they saw God's presence from a distance, but they had limited access. Chaos, the unraveling of God's good and perfect order meant that because of their sin, where God originally intended for there to be perfect communion with his people, there were now elements of separation. Limited access was how chaos impacted their experience of community with God back then. But for us, chaos impacts our experience of communion with God in different ways. You see, chaos for them meant limited access. However, for, me, for us, we don't need an intercessor, right? For us, thanks to the sacrifice of Christ, we have full access to God. Christ tore down the wall of hostility between us and God by paying for our sins that once separated us. And Hebrews tells us that as a result, where there was once fear of getting too close to God's holy presence, we on this side of eternity, not only get to approach the throne room of grace with confidence, but we get to rejoice at the fact that the very presence that was once dangerous to the people of God now resides in us as the people of God. Yet if we're honest, there's still a bit of chaos in our relationship with God, isn't there? There's still a bit of sea in our communion that robs us of fellowshipping with, with the Father. Lest your relationship with God is perfect. You see, chaos for the Israelites meant they needed an intercessor, limited access. But chaos for us is shown in how bad we are at truly beholding truly paying attention to, being moved by the mind-blowing reality that thanks to Jesus, we have full communion with God. We don't behold it as we should. If we did, we would pray more than we do. If we did, it would never be a struggle to make time for God. And ultimately, if we didn't struggle to behold the beauty of communion with God, then biblical joy would never be an issue. Though we have full access to the Father, we still have a sinful, fleshly nature that injects chaos into our communion with God. And this chaos doesn't just make it difficult for us to consistently behold the truths and promises of God. It actually makes it easier for us to behold the false promises of lesser joys. See, there's some chaos in our communion. This is why our emotions can be fully engaged. We become fully alive at a UT football game on a Saturday and yet emotionally unaffected by the truth of God's word on a Sunday. Wait, so God became a man and died in my place so that I may live with him forever, now and forever? That's pretty cool, I guess. What's for lunch? We aren't as moved as we should be because there's some chaos in our communion. This is why it's easier to spend hours doom scrolling on social media than it is to spend 30 minutes a day with the Lord. And that's not just me trying to be a hater. I'm not just coming at your neck, right? Calling you out. That was a confession. I do that. Because there's some chaos 
in my communion. It's why it's easier to, to behold the temporary pleasures this world offers than to behold the promises of God that says, no, it's in God's presence is where the fullness of joy is found. I could go on and on and on. We behold the wrong things because thanks to our flesh, there's some chaos in our communion. This is also why it can feel like we're doing all the right things. We're making time to hear God's voice. We're spending time with him. We're hearing from his spirit and from his word. We're living in community, and yet joy feels out of reach because though we may know he's there, he feels distant. And we can feel ourselves like David asking God, oh God, how long will you hide your face from me? Thanks to our flesh, there's some chaos in our communion. The apostle Paul knew this feeling well of having a desire to please the Lord and yet struggling with his flesh. And in that struggle, he cries out in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We all know the answer to that. Verse four of our passage gives us the answer. God will. <laughs> he will. He will wipe away every single tear and promises to do away with death and everything associated with it, including our flesh. And we can rejoice at that answer because biblical joy, it doesn't sidestep the reality of our struggle in our relationship with the Lord. It speaks directly to it. In Paul's pain and in our pain, there is a promise of no more sea, which means perfect communion, no more flesh to wrestle with. We won't struggle to behold the things of God because there will be no other option. We'll see God face to face, no distractions, no separations, no chaos, just perfect communion. And it's that promise that is the reason why biblical joy can be had if we allow our feelings to rest on God's promise of what's to come. Yet the truth remains, biblical joy is not always the easiest. And so who is someone we can look to as a great example to follow? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. It's Huli. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't really get much sleep last night, so I'm a little loopy. Just kidding. It's Jesus. Hey, you didn't see that coming. No, Huli is a great example, but we see biblical joy embodied to perfection in Christ. You see, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the place where God's very presence dwelled on earth. It foreshadowed the day when heaven and earth would become one. But it also foreshadowed the one person who would make that future reality even possible. You see, in John's gospel, Jesus' first coming John describes Christ as the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Guess what that word dwelt translates to? Tabernacled. Just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the very body of Jesus as he walked the earth, being fully divine and fully human is where heaven and earth intersected. But here's what's crazy. Although Christ's body also foreshadowed that glorious future of a perfectly unified heaven and earth, of heaven and earth becoming one, it was the very breaking of his body that made that glorious future even possible. Christ, on a rescue mission to save us from the chaos that we've created, he chose to leave his perfect community in heaven. 
and enter into our chaos. And during his time on earth, not only did his friends abandon him to be crucified, but on that cross, as he bore the weight of our sin, the Father turned his face away. Christ allowed our chaos to fracture perfect communion with the Father. He experienced more physical, emotional, and spiritual pain than you or I will ever have to. As he was on that cross, as he was being crucified, as he was being tortured, as he was being marred beyond the recognition is what the text says. And having a crown of thorns beaten into his head and his bones and, and legs and hands dislocated, pierced through his legs and pierced through his wrists. He knows what it's like to experience the most pain imaginable and yet he endured. And Hebrews 12, two tells us why. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What was this future joy that would motivate him to endure such pain? It was you and me, you and me. At the height of his pain, Jesus himself was holding on to the promises of God found in Isaiah. A future day when his people, having been crucified by his blood, would enter into new creation unmarred by the effects of chaos thanks to his very own sacrifice, a day where he himself would wipe away every tear and he himself would forever rejoice over us as we experience the eternal joy of perfect communion with him and perfect community with one another. Christ himself shows us that biblical joy does not sidestep the reality of suffering and pain and struggle. It speaks directly to it and it gives us an opportunity to trust God's promise to one day make all things right. And so in light of this, what are some application points we can take away from this? For one, for starters, you can be honest with where you're at. You don't have to pretend to be on a mountaintop if you're in a valley. And you don't have to pretend to be in a valley if you're on a mountaintop. Nothing more spiritual about that. We can be present with what we're feeling. We can be honest. The Bible is not foreign to the tension. It shows that it's a pattern. We can be a community that, that encourages one another to, to, be the, to be honest, to be open. Second, we behold the promises of God. We reflect on them. We don't just let them pass us by. We ponder them. We let them, we open our eyes and our hearts to them individually and collectively. And lastly, we choose to trust that God will fulfill every single promise he's ever made for those of us who trust in Christ. And he will allow for us to, to have that hope of an eternal joy to be what lies at the foundation of our present joy, that we may endure in hopeful anticipation for Christ to return and make all things right. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, there are no words to describe the beauty of your love for us. That you would send your son to put on flesh. That Jesus would, would give up perfect community and perfect communion so that we may have 
perfect community and perfect communion with him and with one another in him. That he would absorb our chaos and give us eternal life. There are no words. Just worship. God, I pray that as we behold the reality of that, and we behold the promises that are to come because of that reality, because of what Jesus has done for us. Would that ignite our souls on fire, Lord? Would we choose to have our joy rest on the promises that find their yes and amen in Christ, God? And would we be a people that practice biblical joy in such a way that reflects your light and your joy to those around us? This is the joy the world craves and needs, and it's only found in Christ. God, we thank you, and we worship you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, like I mentioned earlier, I I really don't know where you're at. Um, If this is your first time, if you or someone who maybe comes to church, maybe around the Christmas holiday. So this is your first time hearing this message of the gospel or you've heard it before and have just kind of let it pass by. My encouragement to you is my encouragement to everyone else in here that we would behold the reality of what we're talking about. We are hardwired to experience joy. We're also hardwired to only, to, to have that joy fulfilled in Christ and no other. And so if you're in here and you can identify as someone who is struggling to find happiness and pleasure and joy in other things, and yet you have God's blessing of letting you see that it doesn't fulfill so that you would crave for something more, I'm here to tell you that there is a promise of joy, of the fulfillment of pleasure in Christ, in knowing the future that he's secured for us and in him allowing the Holy Spirit to indwell with us. And so if that's you, if you are wanting to learn more about Jesus or to actually take that step of faith and place your hope in Christ, then I would encourage you to come up and talk to someone up here or you can even text faith to the number behind me. We would love to walk with you, follow up with you. For those of us in here who have put our faith in Christ, we're gonna move into a time of communion. This is an opportunity to behold, to not just let this moment pass by as an empty tradition or something we do every Sunday, but to actually ponder and open our eyes to the reality of what's to come, but also the reality of what it costs. As we break that cracker or that bread, we realize, we visualize, we're reminded that man, Christ's body, in his body, where the fullness of heaven and earth dwelled, it broke. It separated. He allowed chaos into himself and it caused him to break his body. Why? So that you and I would be perfectly unified with him now and forevermore. And so would we reflect on that? Would we behold that as we eat the bread, break the bread, drink the wine? That's my prayer for us in here today. Love y'all. Well, hey, I hope you guys are encouraged as we've just seen how Jesus himself embodies perfect biblical joy, right? He embodied biblical joy to perfection. And we get to benefit from that if we put our faith and trust in him. Um, I actually wanted to close with a story. You know, I joked earlier about not having told my parents that I'm a a Christian. Uh, They've known now for for a long time, 12, 13 years. And um, 
What's really crazy is, you know, me deciding to become a believer was easily one of the most painful things that I put my parents through. And it caused one of the most painful seasons for me as well with all of the relational turmoil that ensued as a result. And yet fast forward 12, 13 years, a couple weeks ago when we had Celebration Sunday, we were dedicating our two-year-old daughter and my entire Muslim devout, devout Muslim family was here celebrating, celebrating what God is doing in our church. And what's crazy about that is they came for the dedication, but stayed for the baptisms. And as we as a church were celebrating, rejoicing, they partnered with us and got up and began to clap at the grace poured out on the lives of others. The moments of extreme pain, I would have never imagined in a million years that I would be rejoicing with my family at the church that I'm on staff for. God turned what was the most painful, one of the most painful seasons in my life to a moment where I was most rejoiced, one of the most joyous moments I've ever been. And yet, it's just a glimpse. For those of us who are in Christ, we will see God and he will rejoice over us as we rejoice with him and one another forever. No more pain, relationally, physically, emotionally, with one another or with the Lord. And so with that, would love to light our last candle here. And as it lights, would you envision Jesus being the light of the world, coming and embodying biblical joy to perfection? And would you experience the joy of allowing your feelings to rest on the promises of God that have been fulfilled in Christ? And so with that, the well, Austin, you are sent. I love you all. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.